0: 361 Degrees Podcast Season 7, Episode 8. My name's Ben Smith from Wireless Worker.
1: I'm Ray Blanford from the All About Sites. Uh, wait, 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 wait.
2: Don't forget about me. This is Ewan from Mobile list Review. Right, you can start.
0: He's Ewan from Mobile Legislature Review. Ralph Blanford, just you and me in the room together this week.
1: Yeah, it's very sad. It's also quite
0: peaceful. It is. It's been strangely peaceful getting prepared for, for this week's episode. Now, we have uh, Mr McLeod offline down the wire, as it were. Uh, and, uh, well, he, he's he can't be here this week. He can't be here this week. No. There's this, the pause where he would normally interject and say something deeply witty and possibly a bit shouty, but he can't be here this week. So we're going to crack on without him, but he is fundamental to this week's episode and has made his usual contribution, uh, albeit somewhat remotely. But we'll come back to that. But before before we kick off, uh, Rafe Banford, do you have any
1: news? Uh, well, I was thinking about this and I thought I'd pick up my phone and see what reaction I got to it.
0: <laughs> Holy... <laughs> Holy something, that is. Um, so Rafe Blanford is holding up a Nokia Lumia 930. 930, or only the best for Rafe Blanford, and I would say it is somewhere between bright and eyeball searingly. I it's the color that people of like those jackets that, uh, that like utility workers wear or people on railways and things. That is,
1: it is. This is the bright orange variant of the Lumia <laughs> you 930. don't. You don't, you don't say. And the, the other version is a lime green one. I um, think
0: I think bright orange is substantially underselling both the brightness and the orangeness <laughs> of that case Fair enough. So you've decided to hurt all the people around you with, with eyeball melting kind of
1: stuff. It, it has been picking up a few comments. Um, the other bit of news uh, just mentioned in passing, it's got the latest uh, Windows Phone 8.1 update one update. Actually the thing <laughs> interesting I know I know the naming of it, it really it, it pains me Right, uh, but, is this a good thing? It's a a few nice extras in there, but the one that actually caught my attention was a little change that they've made to Internet Explorer 11. They're now kind of doing some extra bits on the user agent so that websites think that it's an iPhone or an Android device and it will then serve up the right website. And I think it's uh, a pretty good indication of where Microsoft is in mobile that it's having to... uh, Let's say fake its user agent in order to get served a proper mobile site. So you now get the Twitter site for iPhone on Windows Phone, whereas before you got kind of the basic mobile site, which was only a bit up on a, a WAP site.
0: There is a there is a whole episode just in that because that sounds horrendous because it, it means that you can't detect easily, I presume, anymore if you if you're getting mobile IE users and it's all going to break and the website not going to work. And uh, I'm speaking with my being responsible for developers hat on. So, yeah.
1: well, well, since you ask... Uh, and, and have you got any news, Ben, <laughs> as I managed to, to forget, usually you and we jump in at this point, it just shows how much we're missing. I you know,
0: know, I know. There is defi- there's definitely one leg from this three-legged still missing this week. <laughs> and consequently, we're all on our arses. Um, so i just come back from America, and uh, that in itself is not especially exciting, uh, although I did have quite a nice time there, and I ate a lot of food. Uh, but what i did do was i used 3's feel like feel at home roaming so i made phone calls and used data like i was at home at 4free which was just the best thing ever now uh, if you don't travel any talk of internationally any talk of roaming probably leaves you cold but having having been stung for horrendous bills in the past and and also having been a bit unimpressed with the offerings for travel to the us from europe because in europe we were getting some regulation that was bringing prices down but America was still a, a very expensive place to go. I could just pick up my phone and use it. And do you know how liberating it was to stand in the middle of Washington or I was in Wisconsin or I was in Virginia, or you know, and just to use my phone like normal?
1: Yeah, it, it is fantastic. And what you kind of forget when you're in that situation, you tend to use your mobile phone even more than you would at home because you're in yeah. that unfamiliar environment. And certainly, when I was on holiday, this was in Europe recently. So it's not quite such a revelation because we've had reasonable pricing for a while now. It does actually change what you use the phone for, and it also makes you realise how dependent you are on mobile data to do an awful lot of stuff on your phone.
0: So, Rafe, again, this is the point where I'd normally turn to you and McLeod and say, Ewan McLeod, what are we talking about this week? But fortunately, he's had the foresight to send us something. So, Excellent.
1: I, I wonder if he's look- got any news as well.
0: I wonder if he's got any news as well. So, over to Ewan McLeod
2: on the crackly phone line. Hello there, gents. This is Ewan, reporting live from the scene in Swindon. I'm afraid I can't be with you today in the studio. Uh, that's because it's my first day at the Nationwide Bank, uh, where I'm beginning some contracting. Uh, but I still intend being a pain in the backside for you both, and that is uh, I'm going to set you a question. And here it is. Uh, given it's the 100th anniversary of the start of World War One, that got me thinking uh, about the technology changes that have occurred uh, in, in that period. it's actually, if you take a step back, it's quite astonishing what we have all achieved. But what for you, so this is the, the, the question here, what for you was the turning point or has been a turning point? Any key movements? Was it the moon or was it the first mobile phone? What turning points do you think have really supported where we are today in this connected world? I'd like to hear what you have to say. And uh, please, can you argue with each with each other? And Ben, if you could say something like, um, apologist or something, at Rafe. And uh, Rafe, if you could just say, well, that's just not acceptable. Something like that. Uh, just to make sure we, we maintain the standard status
0: Okay, so it's Ewan's first day at big school today and he's not allowed out to play because he has to stay late and do his homework. But um, uh, congratulations to him because that's a, that's a big, big job at, uh, at Nationwide. I'm sure he's going to be in and tell us all about it, but uh, he's doing more clever innovation mobile stuff for them. Um, yeah, so Rafe, 100 years, I think this week as we record the podcast, uh, which given the number of people who listen back to these uh, uh, after after time I probably won't mean a. A great deal, but about a hundred years, as recalled this, since the beginning of World War One, and it does rather mark a hundred years of wireless and and mobile comms and and a colossal amount of a colossal amount of development. So we're going to talk through that.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I th- you know, obviously World War One and that anniversary, I think, means a lot to those of us who, particularly in Europe, but it's also is an epochal moment that you can kind of choose. Good word. You can, you can choose to kind of represent a, a before and after. I think it's also helpful to think of a reminder where things came from. And just as there were huge changes in society as a result of that conflict, and then subsequently you know, World War Two, technology often was pushed forward by events like that. And that's certainly the case if we look at something like uh, radio telephones, and it's sort of the early history, we should maybe start with then.
0: Well, that's right, because... There that wireless comms was actually a thing, wasn't it? Well before World War One, absolutely. I. And so by that by that point, uh, Marconi had set up uh, well wireless telegraph systems, basically. And this this was an, a, an idea that had formed for a while now, uh, or for for some time at that point. The idea of, of creating an electromagnetic sort of pulse that you could detect and use use for communication. Can you?
1: That that's right, and it's the you know. Actually, it goes back to kind of British imperial history and the idea of laying telegraph lines around the world and the Atlantic cables, but also going off to Africa, India and uh, Australia as well. And this sending of telegrams, which today we pretty much have no equivalent to.
0: And, uh, and so all of those services started off as wired and actually quite quite a lot of that was, was built out by um, some of the big names that we, we recognise today, there's the AT&Ts in the States and the Bells, and there was Mar- Marconi, who, who was in Essex in the UK, been doing some some reading. And I was just amazed how how primitive comms was uh, around the time when World War One started. So there was predominantly the, the use of comms was actually still wired. And there are, there are incredible stories about um, various military organisations literally running telegraph wire through battlefields or through war zones just so that they could communicate and actually um i was i was looking at uh, some some stuff earlier from the the royal signals uh, which is uh, a part, part of the, the british army and you know you, you read back the history of wireless comms and actually wireless comms in a lot of cases meant flashing a light at someone i mean really primitive the kind of primitive wireless comms that goes back really you know to sort of you know thousands of years of smoke signals and semaphore and And the other one that was widely used at the outbreak of world war one was pigeons carrier pigeons as well
1: yeah and in terms of ship to ship stuff actually flashing a light was one of the main ways they did that but if we're you know trying to get it onto topic a little bit here you know true wireless comms as we would kind of think Actually, a lot of the impetus uh, for this came from the artillery and being able to direct that accurately, particularly when they were talking to the Royal Flying Corps. So it was people up in aeroplanes, which, of course, again, quite early stages of that technology, and signaling back to the artillery about where they should aim the shells. I have to say, most of the time it wasn't very discriminate about where they they were shooting. But that's actually one of the big uh, pushes for it. And actually, later on, you started to also get the idea of it with some of the tank regiments, because it was mobile units. Prior to that time, there wasn't enough movement to really justify why it needed to be wireless, and actually running a wired cable was a lot more reliable. Now, it's partly about the maturity of the technology, but as Ben says, actually, most of the communication was still done by runners or dispatch riders. But what's remarkable about it, although this technology had been in place, you know, for getting on for 50-plus years, actually, it wasn't that widely used as you might imagine it to have been. You know, the field telephone was incredibly important, and that was a wired Connection and it's probably one of the underappreciated bits of World War One technology.
0: I suppose one of the one of the things that stood out to me, uh, which I thought was interesting, because Ewan Ewan was asking about kind of what interested us. And so one of the things that stood out to me was that the Marconi systems, you know, uh, which was the the one of the well, first of all, it was based on a stolen patent so he <laughs> stole a patent from from Tesla and it took years and years for that to be recognized so it feels like a little bit like we should be apologizing uh, as Brits once again we should be apologizing for um, for that for that abuse but the fascinating thing was that although although he did use one of Tesla's patents Marconi established this huge ship to shore wireless comms business and that was one of the few places that you could have the power and the necessary uh you know sort of um antenna size and and also the need as well that you know ship to shore communications was a huge need and um but actually i didn't realize that it was a completely closed system and if you wanted to use a marconi system you could only broadcast from one marconi system to another you needed to be trained by the marconi company as a radio operator and it was almost like a completely you know closed And, and even in the earliest days there was hot debate around whether it should be opened up for, for, for wider use and other, other people should be allowed to, to sort of interact with those systems. And even, I mean, this predates World War One, but even around the time of the loss of the Titanic, was it 1912 I think the Titanic was lost, um, that, that ship could broadcast 250 miles or, or 400 miles on a good day, but you were reliant on the fact that, that one, the, any of the other ships who heard your distress calls, because you were certainly more than 250 miles away from the coast, had a Marconi-trained operator in the room, in, 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 in the wireless room. And, and by chance, one of the other ships nearby did.
1: Yeah, and, and by the same token, the, the kind of bandwidth on these systems was minuscule, because basically you'd fill it up by broadcasting a message and you'd be reliant on others to, to pass it on. So compared to what we have have now, or even later on, it was an incredibly primitive system.
0: Yeah, and at this stage we are still talking about Morse code based we systems. Are. So the the guys operating it typically young men were actually you know uh, trained you know so so many words a minute. And uh, the article I was just reading here says that the guy on the Titanic could do thirty nine words a minute,
1: which is pretty impressive. Which when is you he think was, about it. His
0: his nickname was Sparks because of the sp- speed of his finger. But anyway, we we move on to World War Two because. Clearly, uh, during World War One and around that time, the value of the value of, of wireless comms has begin to become apparent. But already, ideas about security and interoper- interoperability, which is easy for me to say, have become, have become a become big themes. So, Rafe, uh, where did we get to by around the time of World War Two?
1: In, in broad brush terms, there's you know a big leap forward because of World War Two, and it actually wasn't really before World War Two, although there you know, had been an evolution. It was. Promoted by World War II. It's you know, like a lot of uh, conflicts result in technological development. But the seeds of it were there beforehand. So you can think about things like the um, cavity magnetron, which was the kind of the, what enabled radar to happen in a, a radio direction finding for both planes and ships to happen on a scale that was management and was going to become useful. And for the uh, UK, that was really important because it resulted in the. Uh, uh, Chain radio stations, which detected the incoming bombers, uh, but also, you know, it was used in um, the navy and in bombing for that kind of direction part. So that I think coupled together with the wider use of um, radio for transmission, because obviously it would be U-boats and army units dispersed throughout, you know, the conflict zone, resulted in intercepts and then cryptography. And you, know, you can't really talk about that without mentioning Enigma and the various things that happened at Bletchley Park. you know, that's a really big topic, but I think the importance in terms of this discussion is that there had been this widespread use of wireless communication, partly because the conflict zone was that much bigger and partly because uh, speed became far more important in terms of being able to direct and control your resources across a very wide conflict area.
0: Even from the earliest days of, of wireless, of wireless comms, uh, security and, and the integrity of the message was was really vulnerable because you could this messages could easily be intercepted and because there was no cryptography actually in the radio layer, it required people to to use codes as they as they would have done in in written or other forms of comms. And there's reference after reference after reference in all the written material about how tough it was to get people to do that. So even if you had a link and you had an established code that people would Forget or neglect to use it, and you could quickly, you know, give a, give away a useful intelligence. Um, there's there's huge there's cases across the. Um the uk early early on in, in in the interwar and the early second world war periods where even amateurs now uh, had built uh, simple receiving sets uh, which were able to intercept uh, military communications again typically typically naval communications and these were very quickly passed on to this fledgling uh, signals intelligence as it, as it's called which was the, the interception and decoding of messages Particularly, particularly in the UK, and it's funny that even you know about a hundred years ago, we're talking about the same ideas that then as we are now in terms of the Snowden files, because it quickly became apparent to all the all the important powers that actually. Um, access to the access to that basic layer, you know, the wire for the inter, for the international telegra- uh, telegraphs or to the to the uh, uh, receiving stations to intercept all the wireless signals, really had a massive intelligence benefit um, really quickly, and that and that quickly came to play. And a huge amount was invested in 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 decoding those messages as they became um,
1: encrypted. Talking about the kind of the issues that still resonate today, if you look at the decryption, uh, a lot of the reason that uh Bletchley Park was able to do that. They were able to establish cribs based on bits of repeating data. Uh, and so for example, it was with the weather book looking at the identity of particular weather stations. Doesn't the details don't really matter, but it's actually the same as the kind of social engineering we have today about having good password security. It's sort of best practices when you're trying to um, encrypt something. And they had the same problem with training operators to actually do the right thing and not be lazy. Uh, and of course, they have the equivalent of writing down your password in a list with the, kind of the code books that were used to you know, put the right settings on the Enigma machine or whatever it happened to be. In it, make it clear, it was on all sides. And so those kind of issues that we still have coming down today. So jump forward a
0: bit then. And really, I suppose this is the first opportunity to start talking about some non-military uh, uses of, 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 of wireless of wireless comms. And um, by 1930s... Uh, use of sort of sh- uh, short-range radio comms was quite routine by police forces and, and law enforcement organisations. Um, but it, we were still working on um, sort of basically transmission of voice over a standard analogue radio wave. And that that really persisted for, for quite some time.
1: It, it did indeed. Um, when we talk about kind of analogue systems, we're really starting to talk about uh, the forerunners to 1G, which is the, the first cellular networks. Before we had that, we actually had various systems in the States and elsewhere that were basically um, commercially available radio telephone systems. So, um, for example, the Mobile Telephone Service, um, which was a VHF radio system in the States and something was originated by Bell Systems out of the Bell Labs that first used in uh, St. Louis in uh, 1946. And that was sort of an output from, uh, you know, World War uh, II. But I think there's a There was quite a bit of that, but probably the one we really have to identify as being critical for us, you asked us about what were the key moments, and we could talk about the early days of computing and how that's, you know, the forerunner of, you know, what went into our smartphones, but if we're talking about the data, which I think, you know, that wireless communication is the vital bit, as you mentioned when talking about roaming at the beginning of this podcast, you have to look to the establishment of the cellular networks and Motorola in 1973,
0: well, and and that's the, that's the fascinating thing is that this is when the commercial need begins to actually add capacity as one of the major factors. Because just going back, that Saint Louis thing, I was I was reading that article and I was amazed. I mean, the capacity of that system was, as I understand it, three simultaneous calls in the same city, <laughs> which is is mind bending. Now to say, oh yes, you've got a you know a mobile telephony service. By the way, London. You know, however many you know, millions of people, seven million people in London. You know, you can only, only three of you can make a call at the same time, and yet that worked because there were, obviously there wasn't high demand. There was very very high pricing for, for, for that kind of telephony. But actually, it was became very important to add capacity, and so initially analog systems enabled that. But actually, then it was really the move to it was really the move to cell based. Uh, Systems that actually really added that in the first instance,
1: wasn't it? That's right. I mean, the cell systems were really about capacity as much as anything else. And the actual technology was very similar. And actually, as you said earlier, these radio analog systems were very easy to intercept. And it was the uh, Nordic mobile telephone service over in Scandinavia, which was using a, a similar technology, and actually you could pick up a scanner and basically just listen in on calls because they weren't encrypted. Now, various workarounds were uh, introduced, and actually Alan Turing had been working on you know scrambled telephone systems, admittedly mainly over wired systems, but you know the same principles could be used. But they weren't, and so you know if you can remember back into the sort of kind of this is in the 1980s with you know, yuppies with their car telephones and mobile telephones.
0: Just for anyone who's not in the UK who might not be familiar with the term
1: yuppie. Thank you, Ben.
0: uh, Go on. What is yuppie? It was an acronym, and I'm desperately trying. Young, Um, upwardly...
1: Unpleasant or something. I I can't remember. But sort of um, someone who basically shouted into a mobile telephone, annoying everyone in sight, so some things don't change, really.
0: Uh, Young, urban... Oh, young, urban... Young urban professional or young upwardly mobile professional, well, but it was, it was. I remember it being much meaner than that. It was quite an unpleasant term, wasn't it? Yuppies were, it, were obnoxious people.
1: They were. It was the, the people um, who you know, annoyed everybody by, uh, I'd say, shouting into their uh, into their phone. Uh, before we get kind of get bogged down in the history lesson, perhaps it's it's helpful to then move on to kind of technology we can probably just about remember in our own lifetimes. Well,
0: it it, it feels like. From 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 that kind of cellular based system and beginning to add capacity, you almost have to now fast forward into the late seventies or the early eighties, really, don't you, to to start to see all some commercial deployments of that to become more regular. But then, after that, when, when what what's the next major leap in your view? Right,
1: I think you have to look at two G, which is the move from the analog to the digital system.
0: And how many years have we skipped now then?
1: And well, we're talking about really the early nineteen nineties so uh, we have
0: we've literally blown sort of 30 or 40 years just like that yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and this is interesting because actually this is the introduction of gsm and you get the first network uh it's it radio linja in finland in 1991 but also you are seeing competing standards and so the cdma standard was prevalent in the states and these weren't interoperable and, and if you remember back for you know, you have basically two variants of a lot of models of mobile phone, one that would work in Europe and the States, and obviously you're also getting issues around uh, bands and frequencies. Now, you did have these before, but they were kind of, these systems were, um, just like the early Marconi systems, weren't really interoperable, but GSM did introduce the idea of interoperability, and you'd be able to have kind of a pan-European service. That was quite a few years away still before roaming agreements got set up, but it it's amazing from that date just how quickly things start happening. So if we sort of go to uh, 1993, we have the IBM Simon, which is generally acknowledged to be the world's first smartphone. It wasn't really referred to as such. And then in 1996, you had Nokia releasing the Nokia 9000, um, which at the time became their best-selling phone, which tells you something about just how many phones were being sold. And this was one with a kind of... Um, Computer-style phone, you know, combining a, a PDA from HP with a phone from from Nokia. It's only when you get to two thousand, which I think it's really quite recently, that you get the Ericsson R three hundred and eighty, which was the first Symbian smartphone. I knew it hit. I knew we'd uh, hit uh, Symbian. Yeah, I knew we'd be able to get Symbian in. And, and honestly, Symbian until the last last year of the decade, twenty ten, was the dominant smartphone platform and selling five hundred million units. And back then, we're talking, you know, the first. Um, mass market Nokia devices like the seventy six fifty, the thirty six fifty, and then, you know, uh, from uh, Sony Ericsson we had the you know the P eight hundred and those devices. Um, but I just want to step back a little bit and say, with two G, you also got the rise of text messaging. Now you always think of text messaging now as something that's sort of going the way of the dodo, because it's being replaced by the over the top services like WhatsApp, and it's pretty amazing to think, you know. The, uh, the first machine-generated text message was sent in the U.K. at the end of uh, 1992, and it was only in 1993 that the first person-to-person text message was sent in Finland, and it, we're talking OK, you know, 21 years or so. But the text message has had a, a you know if you think about technological innovations and history, 21 years is nothing. I mean, we've let through 80-plus years, and we're just arriving at the things that we feel familiar with. And as I say, not quite obsolete yet, but certainly you can see text messages sort of being uh, subsumed by other types of messaging.
0: That's right. So, so here, we, here we go. In, in 72, we were still on analogue radio systems that, were, that, that linked to uh, fixed networks, and you needed to know where the person you were talking to was so that you could direct your transmissions to them. <laughs> um, by 1982... As you said, you know the GSM standard starts to uh, be defined. I don't think it, it's actually in use at that point. And 1983, the AMPS mobile analog mobile system is in use. So in that 10 in that 10 years, I think is the transition into sort of more personal mobile telephony as we or wireless comms as we understand it today. And I was just amazed as well that something we hadn't touched on uh, particularly was this point around. Uh, machine to machine as well because we're, we're still talking at this stage around primarily person-to-person person calls and calls although obviously the telex machine uh, during all of that time was kind of a, an automated um, uh, Morse code operator I mean it, that's a very anyone who knows what they're talking about will probably be shouting at me now but essentially it allowed you to transmit a page of text and receive yeah. a page of text and so it was it, the machine really only sort of made it more efficient for people Um but back, I'd just say back here, back, so 1982, you're looking at these standards. And by 1988, Qualcomm were doing some stuff around um, around machine to machine as well. So, you know, it, it's still very early days, but we begin to see the consideration of the use of data traffic as well, you know, both for people and and, and machines. Um, and I, I was amazed actually, because I, I when I was looking through it, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go to find BlackBerry, I'm going to find BlackBerry, I'm going to find BlackBerry. But it wasn't until the early 90s that BlackBerry. Uh, you know, shows up on the scene with kind of, well, not even phones. They're just pagers, aren't they, basically?
1: It, that, that's right. And uh, you know, BlackBerry technology is very young. And, uh, and again, we see it sort of disappearing. And it really sorry, just has ai I'm
0: going to correct myself. Not even early 90s, late 90s, my mistake. N-
1: late 90s. So we're talking yeah. you know, uh, a timescale of you know, 10, 10, 12 years at its peak. And similarly, if you think about um, you know, internet on mobile phones, which we kind of take for granted now... The first full internet service on a mobile phone wasn't introduced until 1999, and that was Docomo in Japan. Now, there are some sort of antecedents to that with things like WAP, but the the idea that internet on smartphones is 15 years old is really, uh, it, that really surprised me. I mean, and I was around to remember that happening in the news, but of course, a lot of this is really, really recent. And the same goes, you know, when we start talking about practical mobile data, maybe we have to talk about... 3G, and that you know that's 2001 in Japan, and the European launches you know coming just a little bit uh, you know, after that, and you know actually it's quite interesting. You can observe these kind of 10-year uh, jumps. So you know in 1990 we're talking about the introduction of uh, 2G. In 2000 we start talking about the introduction of 3G, and by the time you get to 2010 you're starting to talk about you know 4G. Uh, and so that's actually been a pattern for the you know the last twenty or thirty years or so. But uh, when we're talking about you know big developments, you know going back to your original question, what were the defining moments? i I would identify the emergence of digital cellular as being really, really important, and the things that developed off the back of that are now, recognizable in what we have in you know, mobile networks today.
0: Now, Mr. McLeod has helpfully pro- provided us with a few sound bites, so let me just, um...
2: Rafe, yet again, what are you saying?
0: <laughs> and, and just, just out of fairness...
2: Oh, come on!
0: There we go. He didn't actually send any in for, for pick, deliberately picking on me. So um, we're running out of time, and we have just skated through a hundred years of history, and we've missed out tons. And there's loads of stuff I'd love to talk about more, but just so many amazing dates, and incredible to see how things have picked up really since the since the 1980s and the last thirty years, and the the, the, the ever increasing pace. But we have to pick. Well, we talked about some a couple of really important turning points, but what would be If you had to pick out one, Rafe, what would it be?
1: If I had to pick out one, I I would identify the introduction of uh, cellular telephony with Motorola in 1973.
0: Okay. Ah, go on. Why?
1: Because I think if you look at the architecture of that, you can see the forerunner of everything we expect from a, a mobile network today. Before that, the analog systems... You know, we're 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 set up for kind of one to one without the capacity. It, it, it's tempting to talk about you know the introduction of two G and digital and all of those things. You're not
0: going to you're not going to say the introduction of the iPhone.
1: Picking, I, picking out one date, you know, if you're talking about um, wireless communications, for me, you know, that that is the turning point. I, I know the I know the announcement of the original of Windows
0: Phone was was you were really exciting. wanting to. Very exciting.
1: Yeah. That uh, and of course, you know, the formation of Symbian when my you know, sign disappeared. Well, it didn't disappear, so, but I know those all. Those those. So, ranks so close I, 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 I'm going to try and turn it around yeah. and have you not mock me, <laughs> um, which is probably a, a, a dubious effort. But, but for you, us. what what is the sort of the key date for you?
0: Well, you and in, in his setup mentioned going to the moon and what, reading about the tech that they used, it was incredibly impressive that they that that wireless comms were used you know in the first moon landings and things but actually by that point i think we already talked about um, the concept and and that method of operation of of using voice over an analog transmitter actually was pretty well established by that point but the one thing that really impressed me um about thinking about communications involving the moon was and, and i this is a deliberately british pride thing was the use of the moon as a satellite bouncing signals off the moon and This was actually used by the American military from about 1946, Um, and by the by by the mid 50s, amateurs had the equipment where they could hear transmissions. And it was this idea that you could use a wireless signal bounced off some some third party to reach another part of the world. And of course, now we have satellite comms, and it only really forms a it's only really a small part now of our everyday. Uh, wireless, you know, your my wireless interactions but actually satellite comms enables a huge amount of wireless comms around the world um, but the one thing I love about this story is that yeah the, the, the US and the US military actually made it happen but the original paper, the original idea was floated by a guy in the British post office in the 1940s who wrote a paper about bouncing wireless signals off the moon? So it was the post office that got it right, and yet you know they still they still have to resort to selling us stamps nowadays.
2: Huh.
0: So uh, as ever, um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, I, we've we've missed you, McLeod, but don't tell him. He well, he won't be listening to this. so He won't know. Um, there's so much we've missed out. So uh, let us know what you think uh, the turning points in, in history were. We focused on the military and that really has driven, because that's driven so much of history, but actually there's a ton of interesting civilian stuff as well. And again, we tend to be perhaps a bit US and, and UK centric because that, that's where some of the early pioneers were. And that's certainly where a lot of the military money was, but no doubt that there was a huge amount of innovation in other countries as well, not least in terms of those, uh, those first international comms that were set up. Uh, transmissions uh, all around the world. So let us know what you think, your ideas, what have we got historically wrong? I know there's going to be some people out there going, no, there's you've got that wrong. So let us know in the comments. And uh, as ever, there'll be a little survey up with this post. So go to 361podcast.com and, uh, and let us know what you think. Uh, as If you'd like to reach us, you can get us on Twitter at 361podcast or you can email us through a link on the website uh, through the contact. Well, Ralph Blanford, thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you, Ben. And we'll have that Ewan back for the next podcast and I'm sure he'll be making his usual valuable contribution. Hold your horses. And uh, wait, can I
2: just say thank you very much to everyone for listening and we love you all. There
0: you go. So thank you very much from all of us in the studio. Thank you for Ewan wherever he is and we'll be back next week. Bye bye. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can comment, subscribe and catch up with previous episodes at 361podcast.com. If you're an iTunes user, we'd be jolly grateful for a five-star review. There's a link and pictures of how to rate the show at 361podcast.com slash rate. Each review makes it lots easier for new listeners to find us.